This is season one of the Free Flow Podcast, a media project of Free Flow Institute. I'm Chandra Brown, founder and director of Free Flow Institute. Welcome to the Free Flow Podcast. Our show is supported in part by the Montana Arts Council and the Prop Foundation, and our theme music was created by Nate Hedgie and Wartime Blues. This episode is sponsored by Western Cider, an award-winning cider maker, apple grower, and tasting room located on the Clark Fork River Trail in Missoula, Montana. We started the Free Flow podcast because we feel proud of the people we work with, our students, instructors, collaborators, our partners in crime. We figured that within our growing community, we already had the makings of a beautiful collage, perspectives, lessons, ideas, the ingredients for a unique mosaic of sound and story. We wanted to create an audio aggregation of experiences, places, lessons, histories, dreams, and portraits, something like a literary journal, and a collaborative documentation of the evolving West. So producer Rick White, a mighty fine writer himself, wanted to record long-form interviews in wild places, connecting listeners with authors and other creative leaders, and allowing folks to learn how the outdoors impacts the inner lives of writers and artists. Rick wanted to ask some big questions via the platform that the podcast might provide. How does a life lived outside inform a writer's life inside? What are they seeing out there? What are they doing out there? What is out there doing to these writers? And how does wildness manifest itself internally and find expression in our daily lives, in our writing, and in our personal cosmologies? And how does one take such experiences and craft them into written language that moves readers and inspires them to get outside themselves? Big questions for sure. And then we brought in Steph Malterich, an audio producer and freelance journalist based out of Gunnison, Colorado. Steph was once upon a time a Free Flow intern and now serves on the board of directors at the Free Flow Foundation, which is our associated nonprofit that distributes scholarship funds to students from low income and marginalized communities. Steph and I put out a call to alumni and instructors, asking them to share their stories and essays relating to our season one theme of free flowing rivers. The image of a river flowing freely, unobstructed by dams or diversions, seems to embody what we are hoping to do with this audio project. The podcast is integral to Free Flow Institute's mission to create powerful and experiential education opportunities, catalyze problem solving, and generate beautiful, transformative, useful media. To close out this first season of the podcast, we are sharing a piece by Jessica Zephyrs, a writer, marketer, and Oklahoman living out her Rocky Mountain dreams here in Montana. Jessica's work has been published in Green Teacher Magazine, Ginkgo Tree Review, Adventure Cyclist Blog, and Snapshots, a 100-word anthology. She's also the co-writer, co-producer, and host of the very cool podcast, Dynamo Jenny. And we'll link to that in our show notes. So far, we've focused our attention on the rivers of the West. Here, Jessica paints a gorgeous portrait of a wild river so far and different from the ones that flow through our Western landscape. 
she takes us to her native Oklahoma, to a river you've likely never heard of, the Cimarron, which is itself a very distinct, very non-Western expression of wild water. And she takes us also to the people who have shaped and have been shaped by her home place. Here's Jessica. Let us squat beside a river in northwestern Oklahoma and disenchant ourselves of what we think we know about wild waters. Here, a sun-warmed rivulet courses slowly across the open landscape. What was once tall grass prairie is now wheat and cattle land. Our line of sight is rarely impeded. The flat expanse ushers through an incessant wind which bullies the crops, a susurrus of shifting individuals crowded together in a dance a bend and bow to the blue-white sky. Scraggly cottonwoods deformed into an eastward lean might find a lifeline on the edge of what most would consider a mere drainage ditch, not some impressive life-giving force. Riverbanks here are upturned stones and down-cut banks, showing off the scars of torrential flash floods. Peering upon our river at the low flow stage, you'd be hard-pressed to imagine a flood. For here, we squat in the watershed's afterthought, under the rain shadow, among the pileup of winds turned violent. There is so much our land finds wanting, and yet the vast plain has its beauty too, glorious sunsets, waving wheat, and a singular strange history that so few people beyond the borders of this 46th state seem to know. So consider this place and its past by way of your two companions, the Cimarron River, and me. Despite our state's obsession with rodeos and being home to the Cowboy Hall of Fame, most Westerners wouldn't consider Oklahoma the West. Midwesterners call us the South, and the South doesn't believe we exist at all, except in football. Across this field of misclassification and obfuscation flows the Cimarron River, a mostly shallow, listless, and opaquely red thing. Originating in New Mexico, the Cimarron quickly crosses into the county of its namesake in the Oklahoma Panhandle, wanders from the Panhandle to Kansas and back again. The river is sometimes called the Dry Cimarron for its tendency to sink below its own sandy bottom, seeming to have disappeared entirely. In the Panhandle, it hugs the southern edge of Black Mesa, Oklahoma's highest point, and remarkably what also feels like its flattest, Unimpeded by any dam, man or beaver made, the Cimarron drifts where it pleases, which is through natural mineral deposits, salt plains, and saline springs. As a result, the Cimarron is a brackish soup. Complicating its salinity and high mineral content, it totes a fair amount of red clay silt, staining the water red and confusing geographically challenged children who struggle upon staring it in the murky face to understand how it is not the Red River which lies some 200 miles south, demarcating the border between Oklahoma and Texas. Regardless of what it's full of and of what purity it lacks, the Cimarron, however, sticks itself in the mind. It incites an odd curiosity and redefines one's mental manifestation of river. The channel it carves out of the land is often miraculously wide for how little water it carries and miraculously shallow. It suggests a mystery, a changeling. The physical scar that flash flooding has rent on the land insinuates that it, too, is Oklahoman, 
unpredictable with a history of violence, consequence, and a mixture of the elements most undeterred in the face of failure or judgment. If a river could be quixotically self-righteous, it would be called the Cimarron, and it would be Oklahoman. The story of the Cimarron lives in the memory of the people who have loved and cursed it, a fluid, multivalent story. Much of it comes from the mouths of storytellers we will never know or hear. But the first recorded claim on the river is from the Osage. By the mid-18th century, the Osage people dominated the Southern Plains and Ozarks, living throughout much of Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Kansas for nearly 150 years. Friendly with the Kiowa, Comanche, and Apache of the Western Plains, the Osage used the land around the Cimarron for semi-annual buffalo hunts and wore the first known trails through the area from the confluence of the Cimarron and the Arkansas rivers westward. During this time, the Cimarron looked different. It was a riparian ecosystem, home to birds, amphibians, willows, and maybe most importantly, beavers. Beavers whose dams controlled flooding, improved water quality, and created such vibrant, if not small, wetlands, which in our current crouch next to the river, we find difficult to envision. Just as the Osage were hunting the grounds of a complex habitat, so too were Anglo fur trappers. As tribes across the U.S. felt the white-knuckled squeeze of genocide, starvation, disease, and disregarded treaties, certain ones were removed and moved to Indian Territory, the land white people didn't want yet. They were then shuffled and cornered again and again as more tribes were told to make new homes there throughout the 1800s. The Cimarron River then found itself in residence with a new people, the Cherokee, and with a new name for its floodplain, the Cherokee Strip. The tribe leased the windy grassland to cattle operations for grazing, making money to sustain the nation's schools, government, hospitals, and infrastructure. Unregulated grazing ate away at the delicate vegetation along the banks of our Vermilion waterway. And unregulated trapping meant that many a beaver was not there to repair its dam and modulate flooding. For the tribes, the squeezing never ended, still never ends. And the Cherokee Strip, along with its red clay Cimarron, was squeezed from the Cherokee to make way for white homesteaders in what would become the Cherokee Strip land run. The Cimarron has little to say of what it witnessed in the land run of 1893. If it were to spill its secrets in a flood of sudden verbosity, it'd likely speak of the thundering reverberation of 100,000 people racing on horseback over the land and fighting for a mere 40,000 homesteads. It would laugh at the futility, knowing that a good chunk of the land was completely dry and unsuitable for farming. It might tip back its chair, clouded and silent in thought, and then alight on a sudden memory of a woman in full dress and bonnet, steering her speeding wagon from one side of the low river to the other, through the sand and slick mud, with dexterity and fury, nearly running down a less skilled horseman as she went. It would marvel at how she never looked back. It might recall the train cars packed with desperate gamblers and immigrants. It might note how a German Mennonite from Russia swished his dusty boots in its murky waters, his pockets full of turkey-red winter wheat seeds. It would remark on the promise and hope in the air. And then our mercurial river would grow quiet, remembering how the years and decades played out afterward and sigh, saying, this has always been a hard and uneasy place. The homesteaders came because they were desperate, penniless, or believed the land was their birthright, 
forgetting or dehumanizing the people who were there first. The homesteaders came because they were told the land had water and was arable, because the rain follows the plow. The homesteaders came because the war chief, a boomer-run newspaper, described its farmland as the Italy of America. And like the salt flats affecting our river, the lies we were told about the land and our beliefs in our own sanctimony have permeated generations. I worry we cannot now find our way out of the sticky muck, or perhaps that we simply don't want to because that too is hard, or because deep down we love this place and our idea of it too much to give it back to the grasses. I am also complicit. My great-great-grandfather, George Stong, and his infant son, George Ernest Stong, participated in that trample and kick-up of dust in 1893. George was one of the few to stake a claim on arable land near water. And I bet you can guess what water that was. Ye foretold Cimarron. The wild in spring, the dusty in summer, the inimitable Cimarron. Pulling along a wife, baby, and few worldly goods, George traveled from Kansas to the Cherokee Strip to try his fortune. When that fateful September day of the race dawned, I wonder if he scoped the area and hid like a Sooner. Or did he stay behind the starting line and race like a true boomer? Cheater or no, George Stong claimed land 10 miles west of the Cimarron in today's major county. He built a house and raised crops. He fathered 11 children, six of which lived. And his wife, Sarah Elmina, abandoned the farm and the children for another man in the nearby town of Fairview. She was no longer a mother and no longer a wife, and her children felt the nearness of her absence always. When George Stong looked east and considered his hard lot and his parallel fortune, he saw the Cimarron. I imagine that he watched it in spring as flash floods grew ever more devastating, uprooting stunted trees, leaving red stains on the brush. He watched and worried in autumn and winter as the rains and snow refused to fall and the river shrank into itself. When the dry spell didn't let up and the floodplain disappeared and the wind began to take the topsoil, he perhaps thought about leaving, giving up. He was an older man by then anyway. Maybe he should tell his son George Ernest not to worry, not to try so damn hard. But how could he, after all he'd done to get here in the first place? George Stong never left Oklahoma, never abandoned his claim. His children were born there, found wives, grew large families of their own, building webs of Oklahomans with relations forming small towns across the western plains where the beavers once reigned. Today, my extended family dots either side of the Cimarron, all the way from Harper County to Sand Springs, where the river converges with the mighty Arkansas. I can't hardly cross the river without someone knowing a Stong or an England or a Slavic and so on. The folds of lineage unfolding at the corner store. The only store besides Walmart in a 60-mile radius. Sometime around 50 years ago, the Stong sold the farm to Forrest Edwards, a distant relation by marriage, but not one close enough to lay a claim of family. The Cimarron still flows some 10 miles distant from that 160-acre plot that brought us here. Ever opaque and wide, sometimes a rush, often a trickle. It carries with it the same salinity and minerals of natural deposits, but fertilizer, livestock waste, and spilled oil and leaked chemicals from industrial farming and extraction now dirty the waters as well. It is yet red, and it is yet not what you imagine a wild river to be. Nevertheless, it is wild, historied, tumultuous in its way. 
And as we stand up from our crouch beside its waters and feel the heat of the hottest summer in history yet again, the question remains, can we come to terms with the violence of a territory last sought and firmly abused? Or will we turn away and let this shallow river dry up, let the wind take the brittle ground from its terra firma and expose us to the messes we've made? Although I have not seen its banks in over a decade, it is the Cimarron always I think of when someone says river. Thank you so much for tuning in to season one of our podcast. We'd truly love to hear your feedback and ideas. We're going to take a short break from podcasting while we run our summer and fall field courses, and we'll be back in the autumn. And in the meantime, would you consider doing us a favor? We'd love it if you would share our podcast, subscribe, and rate it. This little contribution helps others learn about our work, our community, and our stories. Thank you for sharing the Free Flow podcast with your friends. And thank you to the Montana Arts Council, the Prop Foundation, Western Cider, and the Free Flow community for supporting the podcast. You can subscribe to the Free Flow podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Until next time, get outside, do what feels good, and keep in touch. <laughs>